and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Trevor Thrall, a senior fellow here at Cato. And I'm Emma Ashford, a research fellow in foreign policy at Cato. Today we're talking about a horror that we see taking place in conflicts around the world, and that is the purposeful targeting of civilians. Our guest today is Alexander Downs, Associate Professor of Political Science at the George Washington University and author of the award-winning book, Targeting Civilians at War, from Cornell University Press. As always, we'll start with some news bits. Um, We have some strange ones this week. Um, First, it looks like Trump is heading to South Korea and is interested in visiting the DMZ. I mean, what could go wrong? You know, I actually looked it up because I wasn't sure if any president had actually visited the DMZ before, and and it turns out several have, most recently Obama. Um, And as we all remember, Mike Pence went to the DMZ very recently um, and looked out across the border with what was, I, I believe was described as a face of resolve, but wasn't particularly clear what he was actually doing. Um, So I don't really understand what Trump plans to do here. What does he hope to achieve by going to the DMZ? So you're right to say it's quite common for U.S. presidents to visit the DMZ, um, but not usually U.S. presidents that have engaged in name-calling with uh, the the leader of of North Korea. Uh, He says that he's going to send a a significant message, either verbally or kinetically, uh, to North Korea. Of course, kinetically is code word for use of force. So uh, why you would do that while you're standing in the DMZ and vulnerable to uh, all kinds of weaponry on the North Korean side is uh, a mystery. Yeah, it sounds sounds risky. Maybe Trump means he's going to use word bullets. I'm not sure what kinetic and verbal together for him might might really mean. Uh, yeah, this is a strange one. I, the first uh, president I remember going to the DMZ was Reagan. And the biggest deal about that was um, all the hype that people made about um, how awesome the television shot they had set up for Reagan because he was an actor and people were making a big deal out of that. And he had his bomber jacket on and he just looked, you know, fantastic. What a Cold War thing. But he had not preceded his visit with a bunch of war talk. So um, this could be It would be interesting to see if he goes through with this, but that this could be a bit of a tense moment. Yeah, and he's, of course, uh, also preceded the, the visit by tweeting, which he has want to do, uh, that only one thing will work uh, in dealing with the North Koreans and undercutting systematically his own secretary of state who was uh, you know, trying to reach out to the North Koreans to start a dialogue saying this is, this is a waste of time, um, pretty unprecedented thing to do to your own top diplomat um, and implying that – He's, he's got the plan uh, to, to, to get the job done. Of course, no one really knows what that would be since it's widely believed that there's not really a, a good military option uh, for dealing with the North Korean problem. You know, I just keep coming back to this. We talked about this with Josh Pollock when he was on a couple of weeks ago, and it was the idea of the North Koreans are signaling to us and we're signaling to them. I just am continually struck by how bad the Trump administration is at effective signaling. And that statement that that you uh, mentioned, the one where we're going to send them a message verbally or maybe kinetically, that's very easy for the North Koreans to interpret that as a, a serious threat. And they're pretty careful in how they couch their own threats, even though they sound pretty verbose. So, so there really is the possibility that someone's going to overreact at some point. Yeah, absolutely. And and worse yet about the, the you know, poor signaling, the way Trump speaks, 
you would think that Rex Tillerson worked for someone else uh, and that they weren't even on the same team. I mean, one of the quotes is, you know, don't worry, Rex will handle this. And I'm trying to figure out why is Rex not part of we here? That's really strange to me. So that, that's probably a good seg uh, way to our second news bit, which which really is about Trump and, and how people feel about him. Uh, so you have his recent spat with Senator Corker, where Corker says, you know, Trump's Basically, his his loose in talk is you know threatening a, a war, and then you have the is it real or is it fake news uh, story about Tillerson calling Trump a moron uh, after uh, Trump is reviewing uh, nuclear uh, weapon stockpiles and stuff like this. I mean, uh, what do we make of that? Tillerson didn't just call him a moron, but I'm told that our podcast does not have an explicit rating, <laughs> so I can't actually say what Tillerson called him. But yes, apparently Trump said, well, we just need more nuclear weapons. And Tillerson, in a fit of, frankly, what any reasonable person might do, just said, oh, this guy is an absolute moron. And I think he's kind of saying what a lot of us have been thinking for some time, which is that Trump really just can't be trusted with foreign affairs. Yeah, so uh, not only does he want more nuclear weapons. He wants an order of magnitude more nuclear weapons than we currently possess. He wants to go to apparently the the, the Trump's reaction was prompted by seeing a slide that showed the the sort of evolution of the U.S. nuclear arsenal over time. And you know we had at the high point of the Cold War roughly uh, thirty thousand or more uh, nuclear warheads. Uh, and he saw this and said, "That's this is what I want." Um, seemingly oblivious to the uh, treaty obligations that uh, the United States is under uh, uh, and you know, various other constraints that uh, would, uh, you know, not to mention reactions of other states such as Russia or China who uh, – and of course the North Koreans themselves uh, would – how they would view such a, such a massive uh, augmentation of the U.S. arsenal. Yeah, the, the, the the combination of ignorance and recklessness is a terrifying one, and it, there are so many levels on which this is troubling. Uh, just just today, Trump said, "Oh, you know, no worries. Our our missile defense is going to be 97 percent effective against North Korea." And I, like, does he know there's more than one missile defense system that you need to be worried about here, and that the the one that really matters is nowhere near that? And so he doesn't maybe know that. And so then you worry, is he going to be more reckless because he thinks we're totally safe? And then the next level for me that's so troubling is that. If Senator Corker is really that worried, and and as Corker says, if all the other Republican senators are that worried, what are they doing? Yeah, this is really the question, I think, because at various points over the last year or so, different people have come out and said, oh, they have concerns about Trump or they've made off-the-record comments to journalists. But there really doesn't seem to be any move by Republicans in Congress or indeed by people inside Trump's cabinet to actually do anything about this. Everybody seems to be content just to let it roll along until we reach some kind of a crisis. Yes. I mean, Corker is... you know, the, the reason to be concerned here is this is a nuclear crisis, right? This isn't just sort of any crisis. Uh, and nuclear threats are not just something to really bandy about, right? To say we're going to turn your country into a sea of fire or uh, something like that. Because um, not only is it unlikely that the United States would do that anyway, um, it's incredibly provocative and dangerous uh, when you're dealing with a, a leader like Kim Jong-un in a country like North Korea. Um, and it, it makes one wonder, again, uh, 
point I made a little while ago. What the what the I wonder what the military planning is is that's going on here. That is that is there some basis for uh, Trump's confidence uh, here, or is it just sheer um, uh, rhetoric, uh, which you know you very well might think it would be? But what's the what's the option? Right? Is it going to be a decapitation strike against the leadership? Do they think they can get all of the nuclear warheads on the ground? Um, what about retaliation against Seoul? Uh, that's going to involve a would involve a huge strike against North Korean artillery positions. That's a big war, um, and not something you just sort of throw about willy nilly. Yeah, just to you know, remind everyone of the stakes that we're actually talking about here. Um, there was a study uh, out of Stanford University done recently. I think it was cited in the New York Times earlier this week, in which they said on the first day of a war between North Korea and the U.S., a million people would probably die. Right, and that's because Seoul is within the range of uh, the vast amount of North Korean artillery uh, that's across the DMZ, and you can't just pick up and move a city that size uh, overnight. So, okay, that's cheery. Let's move on to our last news bit, and um, so. King Salman of Saudi Arabia took a million, oh no, just 1,400 people with him to, to Moscow on his first visit there. Uh, new besties or, or what? Well, don't forget the gold-plated escalator uh, that he took, the nearly one ton of food uh, and the, the uh, filling up, to exclusively renting two entire hotels uh, for the entourage, plus his collection of Persian rugs. I kind so of wish everyone did foreign policy like Saudi Arabia. I mean, it's so much more interesting. Yeah, it reminded me of Gaddafi, right? He used to travel with his Bedouin tent and his collection of rugs and not to mention the female bodyguards. Yeah, when uh, when King Salman actually came out to DC a while back, he uh, they rented out the whole of the Four Seasons in Georgetown, and they also replaced all the furniture in the hotel with his own furniture. So he really does travel in a style that most other people don't do. Uh, but that being said, that's you know that's the frivolous side of this, um, and I'm really sort of excited and interested in this um, Russian Saudi visit. Not because anything significant got signed, not because I, I think they actually really talk about all that much that was interesting, but because this really does seem to be a sign of warming ties between two of the world's biggest petrostates, the Russians and the Saudis have had this on-again, off-again relationship for years where they try to get close to one another and then it never really works out. But over the last six months to a year, pretty much since Salman's been around, we've actually seen them get closer together. We've seen the Russians work with the Saudis on OPEC cuts, which is unprecedented, and they actually seem to be learning to cooperate a bit more. So this is a relationship that's actually going somewhere for a change. So Trump was right. You can work with the Russians. Apparently. <laughs> um, though from my point of view, I would point out that Trump uh, loves to sing the praises of his relationship with Saudi Arabia and how great it is. And unlike Obama, the Saudis won't be forced to look elsewhere for friends. Notice that in spite of the Trump administration's overtures to Saudi Arabia, the Saudis are still courting the Russians, buying weapons systems from them and looking for other diplomatic ties. Yeah, that was the, the real concerning thing about the trip to me was there's a number of, of commercial deals that were signed and so forth, but uh, uh, also deals for weapon systems. Uh, particular interest, the, the S-400, which is a, an air defense system, um, plus anti-tank weapons, multiple rocket launcher systems, uh, grenade launchers. They're, they're going to get a license to produce their own Kalashnikov uh, rifles in Saudi Arabia, um, which is all very confusing because at the same time, the United States announced that we're going to be selling them the THAAD missile system, which is another uh, missile defense system uh, for for 15 or so billion dollars. Um, so 
it just sort of doesn't add up quite. Uh, they're playing both sides, taking weapons from both sides, and certainly we're uh, supplying them with plenty of uh, of weapons and other support in their in the Saudi war in Yemen. Yeah, there, there are a couple of theories that I've seen on that. One is that uh, the, those weapon systems are designed for slightly different things. So the S-400s are mostly for planes, for air defense, and then the uh, the THAAD systems that we're selling them are mostly for missiles. But I've also seen a theory that actually seems a little more realistic, which is that the Saudis are doing what they always do and using their money to buy friends. They don't necessarily need those air defense systems, but it's a great way to win favor with the Russians if you give them money for arms. Yeah, and it keeps each side on their toes vis-a-vis Saudi because you don't want them buying everything from the other guy. So it's, it reminds me of the Cold War, uh, the good old days. All right, let's pivot to our surprise question of the day. So Alex, uh, as we ask every guest, um, we have an abiding interest in, in threat inflation. So we would like your take on what you think the, the most overhyped threat facing America is today. Um, that's a that's a tough question. There's multiple contenders, um, but I put my money on uh, the Islamic State and terrorism more general. Generally, um, I was at a, a, a workshop over the weekend that involved a lot of, of of U.S. military personnel, other people working in the defense establishment, and uh, uh, one of the speakers asked, uh, you know, do do you raise your hand if you think that China is the biggest threat to the United States today, and virtually no hands went up, um, and which implied to me that everyone's focusing on something else, uh, which is the the terrorism threat. So, um, I probably find myself in good company by making this argument, uh, especially given John Mueller's views on the the subject. Um, but uh, I've always thought that. Uh, uh, Focusing on the, the the terrorist threat is uh, is it's a spectacular. You know, we've had some spectacular attacks. Don't get me wrong uh, in this country, um, but the the amount of resources and attention and foreign governments we've overthrown in pursuit of uh, of abating a threat that is really you're still less likely to be uh, killed in a terrorist attack by a foreigner, foreign uh, uh, terrorist than you are to be like shot by a baby or, you know, some, you know, some ridiculous statistic um, that uh, I think, you know, of course, with, as with any thread, you want to pay attention to it. But uh, the, the things that's being used to justify like a, a major revision in U.S. immigration policy, um, support for uh, regimes uh, uh, fighting in various places really uh, have mixed feelings about um, that uh, I think it, it's time, you know, 15, 16 years after 9-11 to step back and say, hey, you know, what's what's really the, the threat here? Yes, the Islamic State, right, overran large parts of Iraq and Syria, but by turning themselves into a state, they made themselves a big fat target and they're actually way easier to deal with than, uh, say, insurgents that fight in a, in a guerrilla fashion, right? They, once they tried to hold territory, their, their days were numbered. They're going to dissolve back into a guerrilla organization and they're going to continue, um, but uh, at a much lower level of intensity. Right All right, let's flip it around. What about the actual biggest threat to the United States that's not getting enough hype? Is it toddlers with guns, perhaps? Because you are actually correct that you are more likely to be killed by your own toddler with a gun than you are by a terrorist. Um, well, that's a that's a good one, but uh, I'm gonna go with. I mean, I think 
you know, we're getting more attention back to great power politics these days and, you know, the countries that could really do major damage to the United States in a war, i.e. China and Russia, and now, you know, maybe perhaps North Korea with their nuclear weapons. Um, but I would say uh, the most underhyped threat is ourselves uh, in the sense that um, we keep adopting policies in response to perceived threats that are overreacting and then cause further problems. So uh, let's take oh, Iraq, for example. Um, um, that was a you know, perceived reaction to a threat that actually didn't exist uh, and then drew us into a decade-long war uh, where you know, hundreds of thousands of Iraqis were killed, thousands of Americans died. Uh, uh, take Libya, for example. right? Uh, the common thread here that I'm sort of referring to is regime change and occupation. And surprise, surprise, I'm working on a book on this right now um, where I look at, you know, is, is regime change worth it in a sense to improve your relations with other states and also to what does it lead – what kind of backlash does it lead to in those countries? Um, and the argument I make is that it rarely helps you in terms of, of bettering relations with, with target countries. Uh, and it often leads to horrible backlash, civil war, uh, overthrown leaders, uh, failed democratization uh, in in the places where it happens. And especially where the United States is doing it these days, these are places that are not uh, they're not uh, you know just on the precipice of democratization. They're not uh, they're they're they have all the preconditions, structural preconditions for civil wars, uh, and. Boom, you knock over the government, and that's exactly what happens. All right. Well, that sounds like a future podcast uh, episode. Um, but let's talk about your, your other book, the one you've already written. Um, turn to our topic of the day, targeting civilians uh, during war. Uh, so, Alex, first define for us this term you use in your work, civilian victimization. Uh, tell the audience what, what that means, uh, the scope of this problem, bigger than a bread box, and so on. And how does it differ from other concepts like collateral damage on the one hand or maybe terrorism on another hand? Sure. So, um, I I wrote the book I wrote was more about states, uh, but I would you know listeners should keep in mind that this kind of thing can be done by both states or rebel groups, non-state actors. Uh, so I defined civilian victimization as a policy, a military policy or strategy that either takes aim at civilians intentionally or uses force in such an indiscriminate way, uh, failing to distinguish between uh, military and, and civilian targets that inevitably large numbers uh, of civilians are killed. Um, so it's not a single bombing. Uh, it's not the My Lai Massacre, I wouldn't say, is a policy of civilian victimization. If, if the United States had had a policy of draining the sea in Vietnam by committing massacres against the civilian population, then it, it would qualify uh, as such. Um, it's, uh, but it's a, it's a, it's a military strategy in a sense that goes after civilians on purpose or in such an indiscriminate way that it, that it kills large numbers. And so why? It seems like everything, um, you know, norms, uh, international laws, standards of reasonable common sense and decency would argue that people shouldn't ought to do things like this. Why, why does it happen? Right. So I should, I should add that there's basically two kinds of of victimization. One is coercive, and that's where you're you're targeting civilians to try and persuade their government um, to make a change, do something, or stop doing something. And then there is what I call eliminationist, which is not really aimed at coercing the other side. You're simply trying to remove a population from a certain area. Um, 
And uh, the coercive type often takes the form of bomb strategic bombing kinds of campaigns, naval blockades, sieges, uh, whereas eliminationist is something you see in, in wars for territory, ethnic cleansing, uh, and so forth. So coercive victimization is quite like terrorism, right, in the sense that uh, you're employing violence against civilians to persuade an audience and the government to, to make a change. Um, people get exercised when you say that states can be terrorists too, but it's actually, I mean, the logic is the same, right? And it's unlike collateral damage where you're aiming, in collateral damage, you're aiming at a military target. You're trying to hit it and either you also hit something else or you make a mistake or the weapon malfunctions uh, and you hit civilians in addition or instead. Um, so then the, the $64,000 question, right, why would states do this? Yes, aren't there norms against it? Isn't there the Geneva Conventions? Don't we have all this international law? And oh, by the way, isn't it supposed to be ineffective, right? It's, it's that uh, you know, targeting civilians can backfire and cause them to, to, to support the other side. Well, yes, but. So uh, I argue there's basically two, two big logics here. One is I call kind of melodramatically desperation. When a state uh, uh, gets into a war, it expects it to go a certain way, relatively easy. It has a, a strategy for, for quick victory, and yet it doesn't. And the, the war bogs down into a sort of protracted war of attrition. My favorite example is World War I. All the belligerents went into the conflict expecting, oh, you will be home by the time the leaves fall from the trees, says the Kaiser. Um, it didn't work out that way. And each state, you can see the leadership updating and going, hey, wait a second. Uh, we're in something much worse than we anticipated. And so you see leaders in London saying, we need to ramp up the blockade right, to cut off food. You see the Germans start to do uh, early strategic bombing from zeppelins, right? <laughs> throwing bombs out of, out of zeppelins over uh, English cities. Uh, then they move to unrestricted submarine warfare and, and, and on and on. Um, so that's the, the desperation logic is uh, from a war that you thought was going to go into a quick and decisive victory and yet turns into something much different. Um, the other logic I talk about is, uh, is the annexation. Uh, logic and those when it, when a state is trying to take territory uh, from another state or from a group, um, and uh, it wants the territory but not the people, <laughs> because the people it expects either for some identity reason they're part of a different nationality or ethnicity or for some ideological reason are going to oppose its rule, and so they're kind of preemptively moving against the group um, to to throw them out of the territory rather than face that risk down the road. Um, a third uh, logic I would throw out there is, is in counterinsurgency, where targeting civilians is extremely common um, for reasons of you know, weakening the link between the rebels and the, and the population, right? So you've heard the phrase, you know, the people are the, the water in which the fish, the gorillas swim. Um, so there's, there's multiple ways to deal with that. You can be nice and provide benefits, but that's very difficult and costly. So many states rely on the stick. And so you can use selective force against people uh, to deter them from defecting or to punish defection. So in the, in the Phoenix program in South Vietnam, uh, the US uh, and the South Vietnamese did this and they would, they would come and they would take away suspected uh, uh, VC cadres or informants and they would leave behind a picture of an eyeball. We see, we know what's going on, we know what you're doing, right? And don't 
you know, help the VC or else, right? Then there's the, um, the drain the sea logic, which is we can't deter you from helping the other side, so we're just going to make it impossible, either by putting you in concentration camps, driving you into Bangladesh, as we're seeing today uh, with the Rohingya, or otherwise, or massacre, right, killing off the population. So there's sort of a desperation logic, annexation logic, and then a sort of extension into counterinsurgency. And, and, and roughly speaking, like how, how common, like, you know, three quarters of all wars, one tenth, is there a ballpark? Uh, in my study, I was mainly looking at wars between states. So uh, in interstate wars from 1816 to the present, it was roughly occurred in about one third uh, of wars. Um, so not uncommon, but not completely rampant, right? And, and that's because with states, um, you often get wars that are fought between highly, you know, highly unequal combatants that are just finish very quickly militarily, right? And, and don't, you don't have to reach for the additional weapons to sort of uh, knock the other side over the head. Um, it's more common in civil wars, um, as you would expect, right? Because more of them are uh, asymmetric, many are fought in guerrilla fashion, um, and violence, it, the states are often very weak and can't provide a lot of much in the way of benefits to try and be more attractive to civilians, so they rely on uh, punishment. It seems like we're seeing a, a lot of, of uh, civilian victimization out there in the world right now, and definitely more so in the last five, six years than we did in the sort of couple of decades prior to that. Um, we look at Syria today, we look at Yemen today, we look at Myanmar with the Rohingya refugees. Um, but I, I'd like to take Yemen as an example for a couple of minutes. Um, and it seems very much like the Saudis are effectively following the framework you outline, the coercive framework you outline, where they're blockading Yemen, trying to starve it out, trying to deal with a war of attrition that bogged down really fast. It, I mean, is that how you see Yemen in this framework? Uh, yeah, I do. I agree with you. Uh, I think you're right that uh, this is uh, civilian victimization in wars is is a bit on the uptick. There's been an increase in the number of civil wars uh, in in the last few years, uh, and along with that has come more violence. Most of it nowadays is being done by the rebels. Uh, it's more common that that rebel groups are are attacking civilians, but there's still plenty of states that do it. Don't get me wrong. Syria, of course, is a rampant. Uh, committer of violence against civilians, uh, South Sudan uh, and Sudan in their various conflicts. Um, uh, but let's talk, yeah, let's talk about uh, the Saudi strategy in Yemen here. Um, just talking about numbers now. So this, this they started the, the air campaign and associated blockade in March of 2015. Um, the UN disagrees with itself about how many people have died. They said uh, about 5,000 through the end of August civilians. Um, uh, but if you look at hospital records, it's, right. it's more like an order of magnitude a, higher than a that. A different UN source said earlier that already 10,000 civilians had died. A local Yemen NGO says 12,000 or 13,000 civilian deaths. Um, and that's just civilians. We're not talking about uh, battle deaths. So, uh, and the UN assesses that about more than half Roughly 60% of that's being being done by the the Saudi coalition, right through through bombing and other things. Um, so, uh, to to me, this looks like a we don't want to send a lot of our own troops to fight on the ground. We have a proxy force that can fight for us on the ground. We're our contribution is going to be air power, uh, and uh, we thought it was going to be 
quick and decisive. And guess what? Right, that didn't happen. The Houthis just didn't disappear into the mountains. They held on. It turned out to be quite a fierce uh, fighting force. Um, and so the bombing has escalated. Um, it's been something on the order of fourteen to 15,000 airstrikes uh, since the bombing started. Roughly a third of those are hitting civilian targets. Um, uh, lots of factories, markets, food stores, poultry farms. I was, I was surprised to see uh, schools, uh, health facilities, hospitals, and so forth. Um, so it's, it's just from that sort of sheer pattern, right? It's, we don't know what's going on. Uh, in, we, it's hard for us to discern their intentions, what they're thinking. But from the pattern of what we see, we see a whole lot of, of uh, targeting of civilians, civilian infrastructure, um, uh, civilian targets. So uh, it seems to me like that's what's going on. What doesn't get nearly as much attention is the blockade, which may be actually far more deadly. Um, so uh, the, the, the Saudis and their allies are basically – have imposed a naval blockade. You don't want to call it that because that's an act of war um, in the Red Sea, and there uh, so ships being allowed into northern ports have plummeted by about ninety percent uh, compared to before the war. Um, and there's a system that's set up. The UN has set up a system where they inspect vessels, say, "Oh, these are good to go. They should go through." And then the, the Saudis often detain them, or they sit on them, or they divert them, or they send them back. Uh, and so um, without sort of really coming out and doing a blanket blockade, they've really cut into the amount of uh, goods, food, fuel, uh, pharmaceuticals, medicine that are going into the northern part of the country. And so it's no accident that the cholera outbreak right, that, is, that has been happening, 90 percent of that is in the north, right, the areas held by the Houthis. And we're looking at upwards of 600,000 people now who've been infected, over 2,000 deaths. And the, the problem is – this is only going to get worse, right? Because the number of people who need food aid now, the number of children who are extremely malnourished, right? We could be looking at very huge death tolls. You know, it's, it's funny because for me, this also highlights kind of the problem of spotting these things while they're happening and actually assessing it. Because if, if you ask the Saudis, what they'll tell you is that the problem is is not that they're blockading things. The problem is that the, the Houthis are detaining supplies, not letting them get through to the people who need them, or perhaps the port infrastructure has been destroyed and so they can't unload the ships. Um, but all of that is very misleading. And it's sort of difficult for people who are not on the ground to know what's going on there. And it's difficult for, say, reporters to get in there and be on the ground when the Saudis are blockading it. So this this strategy of civilian victimization sometimes often seems to happen without witnesses who really know what's going on. And beyond that, there's no Saudi Washington Post and New York Times getting leaks from the National Security Council detailing the frank discussions about civilian targeting. So we're never going to hear that either. Exactly, right. There's those very different... Uh, kind of countries involved here, very different uh, uh, attitudes about media and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, frankness of, of discussions. So that's, that's certainly an obstacle, the obstacle to simply getting on the ground uh, in Yemen and doing accurate reporting to, to try and see what's going on. And 
I mean, it's important to realize the the Houthis themselves are not saints, right? They have done they're they're besieging a, a city that they've cut off from from food and medicine. Um, they do uh, commandeer some of the goods and fuel that come into the country, either to sell or to to help them fight the war. Um, but it's not nearly on the same uh, level or magnitude as what the the Saudis and their allies are doing. Um, and it reminds me a lot of I mean this this observation about the ability to understand what's going on, right? So something on the order of one million people died in Afghanistan from 1979 to 1989. And it was very hard to get a handle on that at the time. Right? So many of these crises, states can use, you know, and of course, the Soviets weren't letting any, you know, New York Times or AP or Washington Post reporters into Afghanistan um, during those years. But states have the ability to sort of draw a curtain uh, over a lot of places. The Russians in Chechnya have done much the same, right? So uh, states, especially you know, highly autocratic ones, can benefit from that kind of, even in this day and age, right, uh, uh, that kind of you know, absence of, of media scrutiny. Well, that's a, that's a good sort of pathway into a, another question, which is the role and response of the international community. You know, after Rwanda in, in the 90s, another example of a place where it was hard to get good information as quickly as you might have wanted it. Um, you know, after, after Rwanda, there was this uh, big never again movement and the uh, drafting of the responsibility to protect doctrine, uh, and it gets promoted pretty broadly throughout the UN and international community. Um, but then it ends up seeming like never again really meant, well, it's going to happen over and over again. So what is the right response? Is there a response? How, how should the international community, how should the U.S. Um, be responding to such things? I mean, I've always considered the biggest problem with R2P, the responsibility to protect, to be the practical application of it, right? I mean, it's it's all very well in principle to say that the international community has the responsibility to protect citizens of other countries if their government is victimizing them or if they're being victimized in a war. But if we don't know what's happening, if it's not clear that there is a way to actually prevent it from happening, it's, it's very difficult to actually figure out what you're meant to do in those cases other than sort of say, oh, this is terrible. And I think Rwanda is a really good example of that because actually studies after the fact basically show that there was no point at which the international community knew enough and could have intervened early enough to actually prevent that genocide. So that the practical difficulties are, are quite severe. Yes, of course. The, as you mentioned, right, the, the promulgation of R2P uh, is, is noble, right? The goals are noble. Um, but the enforcement is the problem, right? So the international community, as we like to say, is really 200 plus nation states, right? So enforcement of international law has, has always been um, you know, devolutionary. It's, 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 there's no statutory authority that's going to come to the rescue when you call 911 in the international system, right? It tends to just ring and ring and you get that, that voice that says, we're sorry, <laughs> your call cannot be completed. It's dialed. And uh, these please days, hang up and try again. And these days, the calls are being diverted from the White House to Angela Merkel, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So um, it's, you're never quite sure who's going to answer, right? So the UN might answer. Um, uh, the United States and its allies sometimes answer, maybe one out of every 10 times. Um, but so how to um, uh, enforce those sort of lofty ideals? That's, that's always the key question here. So let me go through a few uh, sort of potential responses, right? Um, one is, is prevention, 
right, to uh, come up with some sort of predictive model. And, and the, the Holocaust Museum here in D.C. has been sponsoring research on this and a number of, of people um, have done work on this trying to pinpoint factors that sort of say uh, that's a situation that's ripe for sort of mass killing or genocide to break out. Um, that's very hard to do. The, the, those factors tend to be far more common than the actual violence. Um, I only know of one uh, intervention like that, and it was the one in Macedonia uh, in, the, in the late 90s. Um, and it's hard, of course, to get states to agree to you know, have an have a intervention force come in preventively when nothing's happened. Um, so that's difficult. Sanctions uh, in this regard uh, tend to be a non-starter, right? These are not going to be effective for this. UN peacekeepers, right? So sending peacekeeping forces, this can this sort of cuts both ways. Some academic studies have found that sending troops, UN troops or police, can reduce the number of civilians that that get killed uh, in a civil war. Um, but the UN's own study of its own operations, its big operations in 2014 found that uh, UN peacekeepers do virtually nothing to protect civilians in an active way. If, if civilians are, are being attacked or if something's happening, they, are, they do not rush to the rescue. They, they take their time. They maybe show up afterwards. Maybe they then you know, help to sort of figure out what happened. They're, they're not taking risks and that's because the member states – Right, who contribute the troop contributing countries are not very excited about being uh, having their troops fighting wars uh, for that reason. Um, the threat of prosecution, right, for for committing war crimes, sort of having a deterrent effect. There's some there's some research to suggest that this is happening, at least uh, in very recent times. And it has to do with the fact that it's much leaders while they're in power, they're pretty much safe. But once they leave power. Uh, pretty much anybody can snatch them and put them on trial, right? So we've, it's become much harder to go into exile and be immune to prosecution. So some people are finding that that's reducing the onset of, of mass killing episodes. It doesn't stop them once they've started, though, because once you've done it, right, you're, you're, you might as well slug it out to the end. Um, air power is going to be a very uh, uncertain tool here, right, because it, it depends – uh, a lot on the the capabilities of the rebels versus the government. So you could use air power against Libya because it was super weak and no one was going to come to his rescue. But that was not nearly enough to 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 stop somebody like Slobodan Milosevic, um, who once the air campaign started, ramped up uh, the killing and the cleansing. Right, that's when the vast majority of of people were expelled was after the air campaign started. So really, if you really want the surefire way to deal with this or to shut down killing, you have to send capable combat troops. Um, and we've seen that happen. The Brits sent troops to Sierra Leone late in that conflict. The French has sent troops to Mali, um, uh, Cote d'Ivoire and other places. Um, that can work. Of course, you have to have the, the troop contributing straight state has to have an interest in acting, right? And, France tends to get involved in French-speaking places, the British in former colonies. Um, uh, but that's rarely the case. It's not always going to be the case. And if it, you don't have a strong interest, you might send troops, but then the minute they, something happens to them, they tend to get pulled out, right? That's what happened in Rwanda, right? The, the, the 
peacekeeping mission was cut by 90%. Once the Belgian peacekeepers were killed, Somalia, the United States pulled out of Somalia after the Black Hawk Down incident. Um, so if there's a, if you don't have a strong interest involved, right, you're either not going to go or you're not going to stay once things start to hit the fan. And that's why nobody is going to save the Rohingya. Right? There's nobody who cares about them. Um, that's why Yemen is in such big trouble, right? Because the the powers that count in the world have lined up behind the country that's doing the bulk of the killing of civilians, right? Because they have other interests, right? Because the Saudis are a bulwark against the Iranians and yada, 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 right? So you see these people, these states get away with this uh, either because nobody you know, has an interest at stake, they don't have a, a, a dog in that fight, or they're actually, uh, for various reasons, backers of the states that are carrying it out. Yeah, and perhaps not not to pivot on to your current project, but we've also seen in the last few years that interventions uh, do not always exist without ulterior motives. And sometimes, as in Libya, where an intervention that was supposed to be purely humanitarian became overthrowing the government, we end up in that foreign-imposed regime change question. Um, and whether that produces better outcomes is, again, entirely unclear. Yeah, the question of escalation is a real problem. Right, and the Libya one is is the right case to point to, right? The question of whether this was really escalation is is open though, because uh, it was it seemed pretty clear from the very beginning, and even before the UN Security Council resolution, Obama had come out and said, "Gaddafi, you need to go." Uh, so uh, there, it seemed it's very unclear whether it was even from the beginning just about protecting civilians, because you could have protected civilians by doing certain things and stopping. It's just that nobody had any interest in seeing Qaddafi survive, and they were happy to get rid of him. There was basically everybody hated the guy, right? So he was he was uh, uh, going to get taken out uh, from the get-go. But you know, and there's there's persuasive study done by Alan Cooperman at the University of Texas who shows that going for regime change in that case made things actually quite a bit worse, right? Than if you had intervened and stopped after protecting Benghazi. That support of the rebels caused them to be emboldened, to fight on. The war goes on for the rest of the year, kills however many people it kills. That was far worse than the outcome you would have gotten if you'd just stopped. Uh, or even if even if Gaddafi had conquered Benghazi and ended the rebellion. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so depressing because it's another one of those cases that makes you realize as, as bad as a problem is, as in the case of civilian victimization, that even the United States, there are significant limits to our power to make the world the place we would rather it be. Um, so on that note, uh, thank you uh, for joining us for this episode of uh, Power Problems. And thanks to Alex Downs for taking time out from his sabbatical, I mean research leave, uh, to join us. Uh, before we sign off, just a quick event note. Uh, join us at Cato on November 6th for How Do You Solve a Problem Like North Korea? a conference featuring uh, former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson, uh, Plowshares President Joe Serencioni, and many other experts. A big thanks to our producer, Jeff Geld. And if you liked today's episode, uh, please consider giving us a thumbs up on iTunes. And as always, you can connect with us on social media using the hashtag FPPowerProblems. <laughs>